0: From Washington, I'm David Schultz, and this is Talking Tax. There are around 11 million people who have jobs based in New York City, and roughly a third of those people do not live in New York State. Or at least that's the way it was before the pandemic. Since then, the remote work revolution has occurred, and now many of those New Jerseyans and Connecticutians, yes, that's what they're called, never actually set foot in the Big Apple. But despite that, they're still paying New York state income tax, and that doesn't sit well with a lot of people. The reason for this is something called the convenience of the employer rule. In some states, New York being one of them, if your office is in the city, but you're working remotely by choice, you're still subject to New York tax. Even though your home state may give you a credit for the income taxes you pay in another state, this type of quote-unquote commuter tax is becoming less and less tolerable for the suburban states. Today, we're going to be talking about why the situation is coming to a boil with Andrew Silverman, a tax policy analyst at our in-house research division, Bloomberg Intelligence. In a bit, Andrew's going to give me some reassuring tax advice on my own interstate obligations, but first I asked him to explain to me exactly how the convenience of the employer rule really works. It really shouldn't be called the convenience of the
1: employer rule. It should be called something like the necessity of the employer rule. What it comes down to is uh, sourcing rules, one of the basic building blocks of, of taxation. When we accrue income, uh, one or more jurisdictions lays claim to that income. And in a best case scenario, only one jurisdiction is able to tax it. Putting aside for the, for the moment the convenience of the employer rule the default rule for sourcing is that employees are taxed where they earn their compensation, where they transact their business, i.e. their office. And states measure the proportion of one's salary allocated to a state based on the number of days worked in that state. So hypothetical situation, I live in New Jersey, I commute into New York City Monday through Friday. In that situation, 100% of my compensation would be taxable in New York. So How does the convenience of the employer rule work? How does it change that basic default rule equation? Well, uh, maybe to start with, let's talk about why it was adopted in the first place. It's an anti-abuse rule. People were working an hour on Saturday, an hour on Sunday, and allocating two-sevenths of their salary away from the state that they were working. So the convenience of the employer rule says, if I'm working from out of state, and it's for my own convenience, and not out of necessity, in the service of my employer. My salary will be taxable in New York, regardless of where I'm working, whether it be New York, New Jersey, Florida, Timbuktu, or the moon.
0: I guess what's confusing me about this is that not—it seems like not every state has these types of rules. And for example, I guess maybe sharing a little bit too much information about myself here. Um, I live in Maryland. My office is in Virginia, but I pay taxes where I live in Maryland. I don't pay Virginia taxes. Should I be? Am I, am I evading Virginia taxes? What's going on with, with my situation?
1: Well, yeah, that's a good question. There may be an agreement between your state, and I think that's probably what the situation is here. There may be an agreement between uh, the state that you work in and the state that you live in that seeds your compensation to the state that you, uh, that you
0: live in. I see. So so Virginia and Maryland uh, at some point came to an agreement and they said, "Okay, you know, there are a lot of workers who live in one state and uh, commute to the other and vice versa. So we're just going to allow people to pay taxes where they live rather than where they work, because it would be too complicated to figure it out. And then, of course, you throw the District of Columbia in the mix and it gets even more complicated.
1: I think that's right. And interestingly, uh, there are a whole web of agreements between the states around New York that allows them that uh, kind of uh, equivocal uh, relationship, Uh, but not New York. So New Jersey has an agreement with Connecticut that says if you're living in New Jersey and working in Connecticut, that Connecticut is going to cede the income back to uh, New Jersey and New Jersey can tax it. But uh New York is the big exception to that rule and, and says, you know, if you're working in New York, we're going to tax your compensation and you're going to have to offer your resident uh, a tax credit. Sorry, New Jersey. Sorry, Connecticut. But New York is going to take your income.
0: I see. OK, so let's now get into what's happening with New York and specifically New York City. So it sounds like because of what you just said, uh, New Jersey residents in particular are taxed really hard. What is New Jersey doing about this? What is the governor of that state, Phil Murphy, uh, proposing to do? And um, will it work, I guess?
1: Yeah, to be honest, states haven't come up with a successful strategy to claw back what they see as their rightful tax revenue in response to New York's convenience of the employer rule. Connecticut adopted one as well. New Jersey is on the verge of adopting one. But that would only to, that would only apply to people commuting into New Jersey for work from New York, for example, or commuting into Connecticut from New York, which is a very small number. And uh, a few years ago, Maryland thought that it had the solution and decided that it was going to refuse tax credits to residents who were taxed on their compensation in other states. And uh, to the person that they that uh, Maryland denied their their credit, they took their case all the way to the Supreme Court, and that was the win case. And 2015. And the Supreme Court said that not providing a credit for taxes applied to compensation taxed in other states was a violation of the U.S. Constitution. So states have to do it. And Governor Murphy's strategy is, from my perspective, full of sounding fury, but signifying nothing, right? He's offered $2,000 to New Jerseyans who successfully win a refund on their New York compensation taxes. He's advocating for a $25 million grant program to incentivize New York businesses to open New Jersey offices. He's cutting other state corporate taxes to attract businesses to New Jersey. None of these strategies really hits the convenience of the employee rule directly and would probably only erode a small amount of the commuting from uh, New Jersey into New
0: York. You know, the other thing that you have written about is the possibility, and it sounds like it's a remote possibility, but still a possibility, that he New Jersey might impose do a sort of a tit-for-tat kind of thing and impose a corporate tax on New York-based companies that have uh, at least one New Jersey resident working for them from home in New Jersey. That seems like it would be an escalation of this fight. What are the odds that that would happen?
1: Yeah, and I think that's really an extension of the convenience of the employer rule. So uh, even adopting something like that, I think is going to be, um, I, I don't know that it's going to make a huge amount of difference. And, and judging by uh, similar sorts of things that other states have done, uh, I, I don't know that um, a policy like that could stand up in court. So, you know, we'll see what happens. But, uh, but I think it's probably unlikely to, to have a big impact. I see.
0: Um, but it's not just politicians who are uh, working on this. There are also individuals who are taking this matter into their own hands. Can you tell me a little bit about the um, the case involving a professor who lives out of New York and is suing uh, the state of New York over this?
1: Yeah, so I love this. Who's challenging New York's convenience of the employer role? So in my from my perspective, it's the perfect person to beat it. Edward Zielinski, tax professor and constitutional law scholar at Cardozo Law School, in fact. He's actually been suing New York on this rule since the late 90s. Uh, The first round of his case, he lost in 2004, but he refiled uh, for his tax year 2019, not so surprisingly, in the midst of COVID. And what he's arguing is that when he works from home, teaching classes on Zoom to his students, wherever they may be sitting, New York has no federal constitutional right to tax his income. And he cites the Wayfair case in this, the Wayfair case, which uh, allows states to apply sales tax to online purchases and says uh, essentially that society has so fundamentally changed that the court should put aside all prior precedent um, and, and look at these sorts of issues with fresh eyes. And he says that that same principle applies here. And he points to the Dormant Commerce Clause and the Due Process Clause of the Constitution and says each of these are violated by New York's Convenience of the Employer Rule.
0: That being said, it sounds like, based on what you and your colleagues have written, that you think that this can only be resolved one way, and that's through the Supreme Court. Why do you Why do you think that? Right, I think I think the Supreme
1: Court will ultimately have to decide this issue because it's sort of that perfect kind of disagreement that we uh, that the court would want to hear. Right, it's a, a fundamental disagreement between states on where to draw the line on state power, in this case, taxation. And we also have what appears to be a question as to the proper interpretation of the Constitution, the Commerce and the Due Process Clauses. And uh, I don't think that states can work together to work this out because it's not a zero-sum game. Some states win because of these rules. Some states lose because of these rules. And we're talking about billions of dollars in state tax revenue. And you know, hypothetically, Congress could step in to resolve it, but the issue's been around arguably since the country's founding and Congress still hasn't waited in on the debate. So I don't think we can wait for 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 Congress to wade in. In the past, just the recent past, New Hampshire sued Massachusetts and tried to get the Supreme Court to decide the case because uh, during COVID uh, New Hampshireites were no longer commuting to Massachusetts, and going back to what we were saying before, Massachusetts doesn't have a convenience of the employer rule, and yet Massachusetts still apply, applies these income taxes to non-residents. In this case, New Hampshireites, the Supreme Court refused to hear the case. the The court said the issue was temporary because so many people are working from uh working from home because of COVID, and that was bound to change once the pandemic ran out of steam. And the court said that New Hampshire didn't have the standing to bring the case to the court. Only a taxpayer affected by the tax could bring the case to the court. And interestingly, Professor Zelinsky actually filed an abacus brief in that case. But I think it's a case like his that has the, the potential to make it to the Supreme Court. You know, he, he's the person aggrieved by, by these rules. And uh, he's the, the perfect person to, to argue this case um, in front of the court.
0: Yeah, that's that's the first thing I thought of when you just mentioned that the Supreme Court rejected that case, that the idea that it was temporary that people were going to be working from home, it now seems kind of laughable. I mean, the whole work from home revolution has happened like it is. People are not. I mean, some people are going back to the office, but not in, in the ways that it was before. I mean, it's it seems like this is not temporary the way the court thought it would be.
1: Exactly. And right. The question is, is working from home still just a convenience if a person, and I think the answer to that question is no, if a person gets COVID, they're not permitted, I think by all companies, or at least by most companies to come into the office. And some companies have become a lot more strict about preventing people from coming into the office if they're sick with with anything. So from my perspective, that's a necessity on the part of the employer, not a convenience on the part of the employee. And some companies, uh, even even before COVID, had already taken away permanent desks from their employees. I used to work at at, at PwC and, and and Deloitte. They don't have permanent desks for their employees. Everyone just hotels into the office, right? You come in in the office and you say, okay, I'm here, and they assign you a desk. And that, that's the end of that. You don't, you don't have a permanent desk anymore. So if you don't have a desk at your office until you arrive in the morning, is that really your office for tax purposes? Or do you, do you even sort of have a permanent office? I think the answer to that question is no. Wow.
0: Well, finally, let's talk about the stakes here, uh, because you also, in your research, do a great job of laying that out. If and when the court takes this up, it could have a seismic impact on municipal bonds uh, and the state budgets in general. Can you get into that a little bit about how, if this taxing regime changes, it could drastically affect bonds and fiscal policy in the states?
1: Right, but I can tell you that uh, it can make a huge impact in terms of revenue. We don't know the, the numbers for every state, but we know New York's numbers and they're pretty massive. In, in 2020, the latest year for which we have data, New York received almost $8 billion of its income taxes from non-residents and another $2 billion from part-year residents. That's 17 and a half percent of New York's income tax in 2020 that came from either full or part-time non-residents. And we know that things are trending downward for states like New York. And then Governor Hochul hasn't hasn't said so yet, but New York City's Mayor Adams has said that New York City's budget deficit will be $6 billion by 2026. And New York City is New York State's fiscal engine. So New York State really can't afford to lose the tax revenue that it receives from non-residents. And we also know that cities lost residents due to COVID. Far and away, the city that lost the most residents is New York City. The Brookings Institution notes that New York City lost 327,955 taxpayers from 2020 to 2021. Other cities also lost a fair amount of their population. Los Angeles, for example, lost 176,000 people, but that sort of pales in comparison to New York City. And the New York City comptroller's report from 2021 states that the folks that left constituted a large component of New York City's tax base. They were among the cities and states wealthiest. So, you know, will will cities like New York and L.A. attract back the people they've lost? Yes, of course they will. But attracting back population is only half of the equation. You also have to attract back their revenue. And chances are there's going to be a mismatch between the people that are moving back and the revenue that went out. So in other words, it may take some time for New York and L.A. and other cities to return to their pre-COVID revenue levels.
0: That was Andrew Silverman, a tax policy analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. And that's it for today's podcast. You can find up-to-the-minute news and latest tax and accounting developments at our website news.bloombergtax.com. That website once again is news.bloombergtax.com. Today's Talking Tax is produced by myself, David Schultz. Rachel Daigle is our editor. Our executive producer is Josh Block From Washington, I'm David Schultz. Thanks for listening.
1: Have you ever thought to yourself, how is that legal? Why is that legal? Have you ever seen a big trial in the news and wondered, what's really happening there? Have you ever pondered the question, why are lawyers the way that they are? And how much money do they really make anyway? These are the things we live and breathe over at On the Merits, Bloomberg Law's weekly legal news podcast. On the Merits looks into the biggest stories playing out in the legal industry right now. And we feature the finest journalists covering the biggest legal stories from across the Bloomberg Law newsroom. You can hear it wherever fine podcasts are found. Thanks for listening.